I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's special episode of the Weave Podcast. I call this week's episode special because I wanted to try something different. I was looking over the past year's statistics, and over the past 12 months, we've averaged just under 250,000 downloads. Now, I'm not sure what that number means in the grand scheme of podcasting, but to know that I've reached 250,000 people or that 250,000 times people were listening to my work or the work of Sarah is truly mind-blowing and astonishing. So I wanted to take this episode to show gratitude to you all. I'm thankful for the connections that I've been able to make with fellow fiber folks and fellow farm folks, both as listeners and as interviewees, as well as the parts of myself and my journey that I've been able to share with you all. I am so grateful for the kind words that you all send to me, the comments that you leave on our website and the likes that you give us on Instagram and on Facebook. So to thank you all for tuning in weekly and supporting us, I wanted to share a couple really inspiring emails, and I also grabbed a couple very interesting and insightful comments from our website from various episodes that we've had in the past. It really warms my soul and encourages me when you all write in because it reminds me that although I'm at home, I'm also talking to you and with you and you're listening and you're following in this journey with me and it honestly really, really sincerely warms my soul. But before I get started with the first email, I wanted to thank Sarah Resnick for believing in me and supporting my work and also creating such a wonderful platform and trusting me with it. Sarah is the beginning of this project and I was truly humbled when she invited me to join. And I'm amazed at how far we've come in the community that we've been able to create together. Thank you, Sarah. So this first email comes from Maggie S., in Goshen, Indiana. The email says, Hi, Sarah. Hi, LaShawn. I listen to the podcast every week. Why haven't I utilized podcasts before? It took one about weaving to get me hooked. I am a partner in a yarn gift shop in Goshen, Indiana. The shop name is Reverie Yarn Decor and Gifts. We've been in business for seven years. My main craft had been knitting, but I learned to weave on a rigid heddle loom by taking a class from another partner. The more I weave, the more I get excited about it. I now own an Ashford 20-inch knitter's loom and a simplet loom. I hope to add a four-shaft loom soon, even though I have no idea how one operates. Our shop offers classes and many things, but weaving is becoming my favorite one to teach. I taught myself to double weave. And while I have mistakes all the time, it opened up the possibilities for creating fabric for garments and blankets. Now I teach others to double weave and help teach beginners as well. I cannot tell you enough about how much I've learned just listening to weave. It's like going back to college only not having to pay for classes I don't like. I feel like I found my people, my tribe, 
and I'm bonded to them through a shared craft. I know you're familiar with the relationship I speak of. It goes back into history, to weavers and makers from my past. I don't know if there are any of my ancestors who created like I do. I'm Welsh from both paternal and maternal sides of my family. So I like to think I come from a people who knitted and wove fabric for their loved ones too. I am known at our shop as the Knit Doctor. Somehow, I've gotten the reputation for fixing and mending knitted and woven items that people bring in. The customer always looks a little forlorn over the torn item, but at the same time, hopeful that I can fix it. My favorite project to date is a vintage Welsh double-sided woven blanket. It had a burn hole in it, clear through both sides. I felt so honored to mend this item because I felt a kinship with it. I was able to hand weave, graph, in woolen threads in the existing pattern. So the final result was fairly similar. Not perfect, but that's the beauty of it. The repair has its own character, and the blanket is usable again. A daughter was getting this blanket mended for her parents' 60th wedding anniversary. It had been a gift for them. Thanks for the opportunity to write to you. Know that I am listening every week and will be supporting the podcast very soon. Thankfully, Maggie S. Goshen, Indiana. Thank you so much, Maggie, for writing into us and for giving such a sweet note. I loved hearing about you mending and the kinship that you've created with the materials that you are healing. It really resonated with me the part where you talked about creating a tribe because I think looking at the podcast numbers and looking over the comments and and seeing all of the different people who are contributing to this podcast in their own way really makes me think of a tribe and how we're creating a community and I'm so thankful that you chose to write into us and so thankful for your kind words. Hopefully people will hear this and someone lives in the Indiana area and they'll come visit you at your shop and and maybe get some more pieces mended and create more stories with you. Thanks again. This next email comes from Teresa in Ohio. It says, hello. I live in Ohio and listen to the podcast mostly when I mow the yard, three acres to be exact. But with the weather changing, I'll be listening in the house, hopefully while weaving. I love the podcasts, all of them. I'm mostly a rigid heddle weaver, pretty much self-taught. I have several rigid heddle looms, but also have a wolf pup I've used a few times in years past and a Louette spring which I've never used. I just got a good start with rigid heddle weaving, then the wolf pup with one lesson, and then put it all aside for lots of years in order to take care of my mother. I bought the Louette during that time, hoping to use it in the future. Now I'm scared. <laughs> LaShawn, I especially love your recent podcast where we learn more about you personally. Right now, I can't remember all the details, but this one thing sticks out in my mind. You're much younger than I expected, and please don't take this as an insult. It's not that you sound old, but you sound so wise and calm. I just expected you to have a little more age on you. So it's good to get that straightened out. 
Thanks so much for all the interesting podcasts you bring us. Thank you so much, Teresa, for that wonderful note. I really love this email because when I read the first paragraph of it, I was, it made me laugh imagining someone mowing their lawn listening to my voice. (laughs) And also, um, the part where you say, it's not that I sound old. (laughs) I don't know. That just really, just really kind of took me out really funny, but thank you so much, Teresa, for writing in. I really appreciate your kind words and hope that you continue to contribute. Now for this next part, I've picked a few comments from the comment section on our website that people have left under various episodes. The first comment that I'm reading comes from episode 24, Weaving Guilds with Jane Flanagan. For a quick refresher, Jane is a very experienced weaver who lives in Maine. She's been active in starting and leading a number of weaving guilds, which is a topic that many people were eager for Sarah to talk about on the podcast. In Sarah and Jane's conversation, they discuss what a weaving guild is, how to find one close to you, and what to expect at a weaving guild if you're a new weaver. If you're interested in listening to this episode, you can visit www.jisyarn.com slash episode dash 24. The comment comes from Carolyn. Carolyn writes, Jane's conversation was great. I took a tapestry and four harness class, then moved to where there were no weavers. This was in the late 90s, not much internet at the time. So I joined HGA and ATA, American Tapestry Alliance. Through their magazines and newsletters, it kept me encouraged. Plus, I went through Deborah Chandler's book, Learning to Weave Through Summer and Winter Weaving. So no matter where you live, there are sources to help you learn. Don't give up, even if you're the only weaver in town. I chose this comment because I felt that it was very sweet and very transparent. And I really liked the last bit where she says... No matter where you live, there are sources to help you learn and not to give up if you're the only weaver in town. I think that a large part of the reason people listen to these podcasts is because it helps them to feel a part of a community. And sometimes not having that physical community can discourage you to continue creating. And so I felt that this last bit really resonated with me and I hope it resonates with you all too. Thank you again, Carolyn, for writing in. This next comment comes from an episode that we actually recently just shared, episode 51, Learn to Rest, Not to Quit, with Shaniqua. Shaniqua is a Caribbean textile interdisciplinary artist and weaver. She received her Master's of Design in Fashion, Body, and Garment at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's exhibited her work in numerous galleries and was a featured artist for Ties That Bind, an American Craft magazine among many other places. In her conversation with Sarah, they talk about how she found her way to weaving, why she weaves with hair, 
and how a family history of working with textiles influences her own work and so much more. If you're interested in listening to this episode, you can go to www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 51. This comment comes from Anita Prickett. Hi, Anita. Anita writes, This is probably the 10th podcast I've listened to, and I love them. I've been weaving since the early 1980s on a loom my dad purchased from a friend. As a child, I had a toy loom I loved, and my daughter and granddaughter have used it too. My maternal great-grandmother was a weaver, and I have two overshot coverlets that have held my heart since I first saw them. It's such a connection to my history and who she was. When I decided to use the Burnet loom my father purchased, I found a local place and took a class and, of course, fell in love with making fabric. At the time, there were few resources and they were limited in what they had for instruction and materials. At the time, there were few resources and they were limited in what they had for instruction and materials. The few people who wove often told people, you can't because that's what their instructions said or their own experience was so limited. I loved when Shaniqua said she went home and did overshot when she was told she wasn't ready as that is exactly what happened to me. I also loved when she wove fabric based on her grandmother's blanket, as that is in my plan with the coverlets. I also loved when she wove fabric based on her grandmother's blanket, as that is my plan with the coverlets. The opportunities for materials, loom choices, communication, and community have grown so much with the internet. Liz Gibson commented about the availability of materials in the past decade. When I started weaving, I could find Harrisville wool and some 80-20 cotton. I am so excited with what I can find now, thanks to the internet. Textiles have always given women ways to express themselves and their independence. Even in biblical times, Lydia was an independent merchant of purple cloth Acts 16 in Proverbs 31, the woman selects wool and linen, working with eager hands. These podcasts are so wonderful to listen to and to hear how weaving and other fiber crafts continue in this tech world. Thank you so much for writing in, Anita. I really appreciate you sharing your words with us. I'm super inspired by the generations that have been created within your family through a love for weaving. And I'm glad that Shaniqua's episode really resonated with you as I can tell it resonated with quite a few other listeners. Hopefully you hear this and you will continue to contribute such wonderful notes to the podcast. Thank you again, Anita. This next comment comes from episode 52, Cultivating Naturally Colored Cotton with Sally Fox. To listen to this episode, you can visit www.jisyan.com slash episode dash 52. For a bit of context, this episode was an interview that I did with Sally Fox, who is an organic, biodynamic farmer located in the Capay Valley of Northern California. 
In addition to her climate beneficial wool, Sally has made a huge contribution to the genetics of cultivating and bringing naturally colored cotton to the commercial market. In our conversation, we talked about how she got started as a farmer and some of the trials and tribulations she's faced to keep her farm operation running. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest you give it a listen because Sally's story is not simply interesting, but important. And I was truly honored that she took the time to speak with me and that she was so transparent with some of her experiences. The comment that I've chosen comes from Catherine Dane. Hi, Catherine, if you're listening. Catherine's comment is directed specifically to Sally, and it says, Sally, I listened to your interview on the GIST podcast with great interest and admiration for what you've done and what you're doing in agriculture and production. I live in Lubbock, Texas, a very productive cotton-growing region in the United States. In just the last couple of years, I've come to find out that the majority of the cotton grown in the High Plains region of Texas is exported to China. About six to eight years ago, a manufacturing plant belonging to Levi's and located in Littlefield, Texas, about 25 miles away, was closed. The plant wove the fabric and manufactured the jeans sold throughout the world. I am not aware of any textile manufacturing operations in Texas at this time. Growing cotton for commercial production is a very expensive process. The cotton grown in this region is planted with chemical pest control and chemical fertilizer use in mind. Most of the cotton grown here is irrigated, although some is grown as dryland cotton. More and more mechanization is used in the farming operation. In the 70s, high school students earned their spending money each year tromping cotton where it was harvested into open trailers. My family was gone from the area for 20 years. While we were away, modularization of the cotton harvest became the preferred practice. And now storing harvested cotton in round bales in the fields is becoming the norm. I've been told that Texas cotton growers are adverse to having farms where organic cotton is grown and particularly where colored cotton is grown. Farmers have expressed concern that pests would be attracted to organic cotton, that their own pesticide use would render organic cotton non-organic, and that gins could not process both white non-organic cotton and colored organic cotton without affecting the quality of each. As you mentioned, these concerns are valid concerns, but not insurmountable issues. Addressing these issues will require a tremendous degree of cooperation and dedication, but I believe there is room for both types of cotton cultivation in Texas and in other cotton-growing states. Thanks for your dedication and commitment to the cultivation and production of naturally colored cotton. Thank you so much, Catherine for taking the time to write that note and for giving us your personal background as well as a little bit of a history lesson. It's always really great when people from fiber towns are able to recall things like jobs that high school students used to have and 
manufacturing plants that used to exist in the country. I know that throughout many of these episodes, we've kind of talked about the decline of various forms of manufacturing. So it's nice to hear people sort of recall a time in history that we may never see again. So thanks again, Catherine. And I hope that you continue to contribute to the podcast and continue to give these wonderful notes. Another another really great comment comes from Melanie Dunkley. Hey, Melanie. Great interview. I was very moved by Sally's dedication to her vision and then confounded by how other people's greed and fears compromised this important endeavor. This story and the shift of the toxicity problem from the U.S. to poorer countries and the resolutant damage to the industry demonstrate how complex our interdependent economy and ecology is. It's certainly not black and white, pun intended. So much to think about. I agree, Melanie. It is a lot to think about. And I remember finishing that interview with Sally and kind of sitting in my chair for some time, just sort of reflecting on how much I did not know. So I agree. There's a lot to think about. So thank you again, Melanie, for providing that wonderful note. And I hope that you will also continue to contribute to the podcast. Again, I am so appreciative and grateful and thankful for the fact that you all support this project. But also, I encourage you all to send your insights on the conversations that we're having, especially if you all happen to live in the communities or the areas that sometimes come up in conversations. I really love being able to put the work into context. So thank you again. And I hope that you all really enjoyed this episode and that maybe it'll inspire you to contribute in the future. And that is a wrap for this week's episode. Next week on the podcast, I'll be speaking with Catherine Cross Sinsos. Catherine is an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary artist with a focus on environmental and social issues, traditional fine craft, and sustainability. Catherine works with natural fibers and dyes with a deep focus and balance between artistic practice, teaching, activism, and invitation for participation. I'm really excited to bring this episode to you all. And until next time, happy weaving. Bye.